Well, just as we turn back to Psalm 77, let's just bow our heads in prayer for a moment. Father, as your word is open before us, please help us to be open before you. Help us to hear your voice and to apply it to our lives, that we would know you more closely and that we would live for you every day of our lives. Amen. Well, I'd like us to spend a wee bit of time looking together at Psalm 73. Um, and we're going to look at the whole psalm, but I want us to read again at the start of verse 3, where it says, When I remember God, I moan. Now, that probably doesn't sound like the most inspiring text, um, but please stick with me. I hope that it's going to be helpful. Um, our title as we look at this psalm is The Wrong Way to Think About God. And I think this sounds really helpful because it's, uh, it's got an awful lot to teach us about how we should be thinking about God. In terms of uh, life in 2023 in Scotland, I think it's pretty safe to say that most people uh, spend a lot of their time forgetting about God. That's definitely true in the culture around us. We live in, in this kind of um, new phase in Scottish history in the last 100, 150 years because before then... Every major aspect of life um, was just um, saturated with God. So even if people weren't necessarily committed believers, it was still the case that, that school, university, government, all these things had the reality of God woven into all the key areas of society. Um, God had a prominent place in all these areas, but today it's so different Because when it comes to education and social care and arts and all that kind of stuff, God is just being pushed more and more and more into the background. As a culture, we've moved on from him. So it's true true of us as a a big society. It's even true in our own communities as well. Um, I would love it if we could survey the people down the west side uh, and ask them, how many times have you thought about God this week? Because I don't know, I really don't know what the numbers would be, but I'm pretty confident that the numbers would be a lot lower now than they would have been uh, 50 years ago. Um, in many, many ways, our Highlands and Islands communities, we've, we've kind of pushed God into the background. We're moving on from him very quickly. And um, I think I've, I've realized that I always, the last, I seem to always quote Runrig songs when I come to preaching Shawbos. I'm going through a bit of a Runrig phase at the moment, but one of my favorite Runrig songs is a song called Empty Glens, um, which actually speaks all about the fact that, that, that in our Highlands and Islands communities, uh, churches are empty and people, people have moved on from uh, the gospel. And there's a I think there's, the lyrics are, in, well, like with all Runrick songs, the lyrics are really, really powerful. I'm going to read a wee bit from some of the lyrics. It says in the second verse, Science breaking down the door and all the hordes go rushing through for more. All the thrills of the world and all her idols. And then it goes on later on to say, Where have they gone? Where have they gone? Gone to illusion, everyone. And that's, that is true, that's, that's, that God's been forgotten about and we're moving on to other things. And I think that what happens today is that people have a mindset that looks at the world and they focus on the material and they focus on the instant. Now, what I mean by that is that people look at the world and they tend to think that ultimate reality finds its explanation in physical terms and not spiritual terms. 
And people also, though, just couple that to the, to the mindset that just focuses on the here and now. And we tend to push aside thoughts of eternity. What I can achieve now, what I can experience now is what's important. God's, God gets left behind in the distance. So as a culture, more widely, even in our own communities, we're forgetting about God. I think that, that we can even say that as believers and as a church, we can easily forget about God. And what I mean when I say that is that it's just so easy for all the busyness of life, all the pressures of day to day, all the distractions that we face around us can leave us at the point where we don't think about God as much as we should. And, and, and I can, I, I'm frustrated with myself because there are so many times when I've got up in the morning and I've prayed and I've thought, right, I want to pray, even just for like a minute, I want to pray every hour today so that I'm just praying regularly. And I always forget. Because the minute you hit your email inbox or your to-do list for the day, God just gets forgotten. We definitely live in a day when God is being easily forgotten. So that gives me a really nice easy sermon this morning because I can just say, remember God and everything will be fine. Yes? Well, no. And that's what makes Psalm 77 brilliant. Because it recognises that it's not as simple as that. It's not just a case of saying, you know, stop forgetting about God, start remembering God, and then everything will be fixed. This psalm is so outstandingly honest and real that it speaks of something that I think we've probably all experienced, but which we're probably all reluctant to admit. It speaks about the fact that sometimes thinking about God can actually make you feel worse. That's what's set before us so powerfully in verses 1 to 3. You've got the psalm writer describing his distress and he says, When I remember God... I moan. Now you think, oh man, that sounds a bit controversial. It's like I would never pick that as like my sermon theme if it wasn't right there in the Bible in front of me. You think, that's not the kind of thing we tend to think about. But I think it's true. Have you ever thought about your, your prayer life or your spiritual life more generally and felt guilty? Have you ever thought about how, you know, God is in control, but then you look at the circumstances of your life or the circumstances of the world around you and you think, why is, why is God allowing this to happen? Have you ever thought about God's commands and then been confronted with the moral mistakes that you've made in your life and thought, oh man, you feel so guilty, you feel a sense of shame and frustration. Have you ever thought about how good and kind and generous God is and then you look at yourself and you just feel like you're a total letdown to him? Have you ever thought about God and about eternity and then felt very scared about what's going to happen when you die? I think all of those are examples of the kind of thing that's been described in verse 3 because they're all situations where thinking about God makes us feel worse and I think this all actually makes sense because this explains why God's getting forgotten because there's a sense in which forgetting about God is appealing because we just don't want to have to think about these big questions. I don't think that people have moved on from God in, in, in Scottish society today because they've discovered a philosophy that adequately um, explains 
God's irrelevance. Because no such philosophy exists. I don't think it's, it's an intellectual philosophical thing at all. It's just that, that for so many people, thinking about God makes them feel uncomfortable. And this is where we see that, that the choice that we're having to think about today is not a binary choice between either forgetting God here or remembering God over here. The choice that we actually have to think about is that if we are going to think about God as opposed to forgetting him, if we're going to think about God, we need to make a choice between thinking about God in the wrong way and thinking about God in the right way. And these two alternatives are set before us very powerfully in Psalm 77. And that's the two headings that we're going to work through together. Thinking about God the wrong way, thinking about God the right way. And actually hidden in this psalm is a secret um, for getting this right. But I'm not going to tell you the secret until we get to the very end. So first of all, thinking about God the wrong way. If you look at the whole psalm, you can see it kind of neatly divides into two. You've got the first half that's quite solemn and somber. The tone changes about halfway through. Um, so the first half here is, is, is in many ways describing a situation of distress and difficulty. That's one of the many reasons why the Psalms are so utterly brilliant. Because it's never just presenting the good side of the life of faith. It also, they also present so powerfully the struggles and the lows that we experience. So if you take that bit from verse 1 to verse 9, you can actually split it in half again. So you can subdivide the first two bits the first half of the psalm into two bits because verse 1 to 4 describe how things seem rubbish right now. And then verses 5 to 9 talk about how things seemed so much better way back then. And we can so easily fall into both of these traps. If you look at verses 1 to 4, you can see that he's in trouble. He's crying out to God. It looks as though he can't sleep because it talks about being in the night. talks about eyelids being open. And although we don't know the circumstances in terms of what they actually are, we know that whatever it is, it's leaving this guy overwhelmed. And so although he's thinking about God, he's not experiencing comfort. And as verse 3 describes so vividly, remembering God makes him moan. His thoughts make his spirit faint. And so what we've got described here is somebody who is just so disheartened. And then his sorrow is compounded when he thinks about the past in verses 5 to 9. Because everything seemed way better back then. Now it feels like God is spurning them, like God's forgotten them. It even feels as though his love has ceased. And all of this is so real because all of this is so easy for us to do. We can find ourselves thinking about God and all it does is make us feel like things are rubbish now and that things were way back, way better uh, back then. That can be true of our society. I hear so many people talk about today how society has gone to the dogs, even though everybody seems to have a different idea as to what the dogs actually are. But we look at the world and we kind of think, oh man, things aren't the way we want them to be. We can look at the church in the same way. And we can see that there's less people coming than there used to be. We can see... Maybe changes that we weren't in favour of happening in the life of the church. We might think of the generations before us and think they were so much more spiritual and godly than we are. They seem to have something that we don't have. And now there's, there's, there are far more people in Shawbos not going to church than going to church. And yet we don't feel like we've got the strength or the energy or the skill to reach out to them 
and welcome them in. So we can, we can find ourselves frustrated as a church. But most of all, I think that this mindset affects us as individuals. We look at ourselves and I think most of us look at ourselves and we see somebody who is a disappointment to God or who we think is a disappointment to God. Maybe things were better in, in the past or maybe your hopes were higher in the past and things haven't turned out the way you wanted them to. And now we, we find ourselves in a situation where, where we're so aware of our weaknesses and failures. We've been bruised by others in ways that we never expected and, and we've even hurt others ourselves in ways that we never thought that we would. Now when I say all that, we do have to just say that, that at one level, the sentiments in this first half of the psalm, if you like the kind of negative half of the psalm, it's not, it's not all wrong. And there are some ways in which, in which this kind of thinking can be good because the Bible never ever advocates this kind of like, oh, everything will just be fine. Let's pretend it's all great kind of mindset. So it is the case that when things are hard, God wants us to say that they're hard. And when we have questions, God wants us to ask them. And so in some ways, we should try to be more like the psalmist in, in verses 1 to 9. We should be more bothered by the things that are wrong in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And we should be badgering God with our questions and with our pleas that he would be at work among us. So it's not all bad, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm saying, you know, the first half of the psalm is, is, is completely awful. I'm not saying that at all. There's a sense in which it's very helpful. It's reminding us that to just be not bothered is, is not good at all. But at the same time, I really want to emphasize that if, if thinking about God just leaves you feeling disheartened, if looking at your circumstances or the circumstances of the world around you just leaves you feeling in despair, if thinking about God makes you moan, then it means that you're thinking about him in the wrong way. And this is so, so important. Thinking about God should not make your heart sink. Thinking about God should not leave you feeling guilty. Thinking about God should not leave you thinking, I'd be better off forgetting about him. I should just think about something else. But to avoid all of that kind of thinking... We've got to think about God in the right way. And the wonderful thing about the second half of the psalm is that it shows us exactly that. You can see that at verse 10 to 12, there's a turning point in the psalm. And so from this point onwards, there's a much clearer and healthier focus on God. And the, the language of, of despair and, and anguish in the first half of the psalm gives way to, to something much more positive uh, and much healthier. And you can see that one of the key things that happens is that, that um, the psalmist's uh, approach changes. And that's indicated by the verbs that you see in verses 11 and 12. If you look at verse 11 and 12, you see some key verbs. Uh, there's remember, which appears twice in 11. And then 12, you've got ponder and you've got meditate. All of these are speaking of 
a very deliberate thought process, um, a thinking whereby you are deliberately going over and over and over in your mind the key truths about God, about who he is, about what he has done. And I think that's a really important lesson just at the very start. If we're going to think about God in the right way, that's never going to happen if our thoughts of God are just passing thoughts that just run through our minds and out the other side. I don't know about you, but my own mind is like, it's just like a conveyor belt of stuff just in here, out there. And I mean, I think every third thing on that conveyor belt is football that just goes in, out, in, out, and then thinking about football, food. That's probably the two main things that go through my mind. And just passing thoughts through your mind. And then one thing to the next thing, emails, oh, sermon, oh, phone call, food, football, all that kind of stuff. Your conveyor belt in your mind goes, if God's just another thing on that conveyor belt, that just goes through your mind and out it goes, then we're not going to think about God in the right way. And these verbs are, are teaching us that lesson, that, that you can't just let God just whiz through your mind. It's, we've got to stop and we've got to go over and over and over in our minds, our thoughts of God. So thinking about God is a wee bit like making a loaf of bread. If you take the ingredients for a loaf of bread and just chuck them in a bowl, chuck it in the oven, you're going to end up with a very flat, hard, and not particularly pleasant loaf at the end of it. If you want to make a proper loaf of bread, you've got to take the ingredients, you've got to take the dough, and you've got to knead it, and knead it, and knead it, and knead it, over and over and over again. And then you have to give it time to prove, and then you put it in the oven, and it rises and expands into something wonderful. And this is what the psalmist is doing. He is kneading, as in with a K, kneading his thoughts about God over and over and over. And as he does that, he discovers five key things. And you've got them in verses 13 to 15. And we'll just go through them briefly one by one. First thing he, he sees is that God is holy. Verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. So he's emphasizing the holiness of God, particularly highlighting the fact that God's way is holy. Now, when we hear that word holy, what do you think of? You tend to think, you know, we tend to think clouds and uh, like floaty and mysticism and all that. Maybe you think like that. I don't know. If you do think like that, stop thinking like that because that's not what we should think of when we think of the word holy. The word holy speaks to us of something that is set apart. So the word holy, you think set apart. And, and, and attached to that is the fact that that, that set-apartness is, is, is because of something that is pure, that is clean, that is undefiled. So I find it quite helpful to think of holiness as the opposite of corruption. So if you think of, of something that's, that's corrupt, it means that it's not pure. And if something has been corrupted... It means that it's no longer set apart, it's no longer different, it's no longer unique, it's been contaminated, it's become like everything else. And so we can think of that, uh, we can think of corruption spatially in terms of like a space. So if you think of like a, you know, like a surgical instrument that's going to be used in an operation, that has to be kept sterile. If it gets dirty, it's corrupt, you can't use it, it has to come out of the space because the operating theatre is a spatially um, clean 
place. So we can think of holiness spatially, corruption spatially. We can also think of it ethically. And that's probably even more important. You can think of if someone's corrupt, their behaviour is impure, it's dark, it's cruel, it's evil. And we can think of examples of that. And one of the great tragedies of human history is that corruption often increases as power increases. And you can see that in the world right to this day. God is the complete opposite of that. He is the complete opposite of corruption. And so he is utterly pure spatially. And now I'm kind of getting to the limits of what I can describe accurately, but I hope you know what I mean. That just if you think of God and the space he occupies, if we can think in those terms, inadequate as they are, the space in which God occupies is just a pure space. There's nothing corrupt, there's nothing dark, nothing evil approaches God. He, nothing undefiled or unclean can come close to God. He's utterly pure spatially, but he's also utterly pure ethically. There is absolutely no corrupt behavior in God. That means that his ways are never crooked. They're never twisted. He's never a cheater, never a liar. He never spins things. He never betrays people. He never exploits people. One thing you can be absolutely sure of with God is that he'll be absolutely straight with you. And this is where you need to make sure that you think of God as a good doctor and not of God as an expensive hairdresser. Um, now, I, so I hope I'm not offending, an ex- I hope there's no expensive hairdressers in here, but if you go to an expensive hairdresser, they're going to tell you that you look amazing even though you probably look ridiculous. If you go to a good doctor, they're going to tell you that you're sick because you're sick and he's going to tell you what you need to do. And that straightness that we see in a good doctor is exactly what you get in God. He is straight and fair and true and reliable and honest. And that's because his ways are holy. And when it comes to the biggest questions of life, is that not what you crave? God's ways are holy. Second thing we see is that God is incomparable. You see that in uh, the second half of verse 13. What God is great like our God. Now, we could you know, just, just take that as a very simple and clear statement that nothing compares to God. And that's true, and I'm sure that's something that you all know, and that's a helpful thing to do. But I think it's even more helpful if we work the dough on this one as well and knead it in our minds over and over again. So the comparison has been made between God and other gods. And so we should make that comparison. So pick an idol of 2023. Pick a common idol of 2023. Well, um, not just in 2023, in pretty much all of history, idols tend to fall into one of three categories. There's the idols of comfort, there's the idols of approval, and then there's the idols of power. And we're all prone to one or more of these. So you think about the idol of comfort. Many of us, all of us, want to be comfortable. Comfortable in our homes, our finances, our jobs, 
of holidays, of physical health. And that desire for comfort on its own is not a bad thing. It can easily become an idol. Remember, idols are very rarely good, uh, are very rarely bad things. Idols are very often good things that you've made into the ultimate thing. The, something that you've replaced God with. It's very easy uh, for comfort to be that idol. So if I look back over the past 20, 30 years or so, I think that the ultimate goal for many people was to be pretty young, very rich, and more or less retired. And that's really just a description of comfort. Um, and I think all of us have to admit that there's a sense in which it can be quite attractive where we've got plenty of money, plenty of time, and not very much hassle. Lots of people have chased that idol, um, and some people have found it. The key question is, is it as great as God? Is it as great as God? So is the temporary comfort of a nice house or lots of holidays as good as the eternal comfort of being a beloved child of God? Is the temporary provision of a cracking pension as good as the eternal inheritance that God has promised to all who believe in Jesus? Is looking forward to another nice holiday as good as looking forward to seeing the beauty and majesty and sheer splendor of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And this is where you have to remember that every, every beautiful sunlight, sunset that you see over the Atlantic, every starlit sky that we stand and gaze at, every time the sea glistens with the sunshine, that's all just a glimpse of the beauty of God. What about the idol of approval? I, I have to hold my hands up. This is the idol I struggle with. I'm not so bothered about comfort. I, 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 I'm always looking for approval. It's been a weakness since I was a child. Because we all love being liked by others. Maybe that's uh, the guy or the girl that you like and you want them to like you back. Maybe it's getting praise from your boss or from someone else that you admire. Maybe it's getting good results in your exams. Maybe it's just getting lots of likes on social media. Approval is so appealing. But is that as good as having the creator of the universe look at you and say, I love you? What about the idol of power? Humanity craves power, whether that's power to run a nation or power just to shake your head at somebody who's parked badly at the co-op. We're all hungry for power. We all like to exercise our power. And yet so often power is disappointing because you look at humanity and despite the great achievements uh, that humanity has done, there's still so much that we can't do. We still are battling against poverty. We're still battling against disease. There are still so many people in our society with broken hearts. Power is often disappointing. Even worse is the fact that power is often misused and I don't need to tell you that humans use power to do awful things. So we crave the idol of power. Is it as good as God? Of course it's not. Because in God you have the one who is all-powerful. And you have the one who is utterly and eternally good. What God is great? Like our God. Third thing the psalm highlights, the next couple are much shorter. Third thing the psalm, uh, psalmist highlights is that God does amazing things. Verse 14a, you're the God who works wonders. Here's a really interesting question. Do you want a worldview where nothing amazing can happen? 
And I wish I could ask, I mean, I wish I could ask that question to everybody in the community here because I'm, I'm pretty sure that those of you who are here aren't the people that really need to ask that question. Do you want a worldview where nothing amazing can actually happen? Because that's ultimately what you get if you push God out of your worldview. Because if you just push things through to their logical conclusion, if you force God out of your worldview, you're standing looking at a stunning sunset. But really, it's just light going into your eyes, triggering reactions in your brain. You see amazing acts of charity where people help those who are in need, but really it's all a bit of a waste of energy because life's all about the survival of the fittest. You fall in love with somebody, but really that's just an overexcited reproductive instinct. Do you see what happens if you take God out of your worldview? You make it impossible for anything to actually be ontologically wonderful. Instead, all you have is an illusion. But with God, you don't need to do that. In God, you can ground your understanding of reality on the fact that he actually does work wonders. The splendor of a Hebridean sunset, the joy of loving other people and being loved by them, the beauty of showing kindness to others, that's all the handiwork of God. The second half of verse 14 says that God is revealing his might. He's made known his might. In terms of God's works of wonder, one of the key things he's doing is showing us that he's mighty. That's because God wants you to know that he's strong. And that's crucial for understanding who God really is. He alone is the almighty one. He alone is the sovereign. He alone is God. And that's reminding us that every time we put our trust in something other than God, we are putting our trust in something that will ultimately show itself to be not strong enough. I think there was a really interesting example of that this week because everybody was shocked in the news that Jacinda Ardern, the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, resigned. Now, she's been one of the standout figures in global politics over the past five years. She's, she's pretty much universally been held in really high regard as a Prime Minister who's done a fantastic job. And I've got so much admiration for her. She seems to have been a thoroughly decent politician. She stood down this week because she's burnt out. She's just not strong enough to do it anymore. And I, I really admire her honesty, but it's also reminding us that even the best of people aren't strong enough to sustain and achieve everything that needs to be done. No one can sustain good leadership, strong leadership. No one can sustain that indefinitely. No one except God. He's the one who shows his might. So we see that God is holy. We see that he's incomparable. He does amazing things. He's revealing his might. But but the amazing thing about God is that he's not just showing us that he's strong. He's using that strength to do something. And that's the fifth and last thing to highlight here. He uses that strength to save his people. That's what verse 15 describes. He is saving his people. That's the amazing thing about God. He doesn't just use his strength to be a showman. Just so that we can admire him like we'd admire an athlete or a fast car or something like that. God displays his strength not as a showman. He displays his strength as a saviour. A saviour who's come to rescue us and to save us forever. 
Now, for the psalmist, the great example of God using his strength to save people was in the Exodus. And that's what he goes on to talk about in the last wee bit of the psalm. We have the amazing privilege of knowing that the Exodus, when God's people were taken out of Egypt, that Exodus, that wasn't the ultimate act of strength and salvation by God. That was actually a shadow of what God is going to do through Jesus on the cross. So the great act of redemption is actually just a glimpse into an even greater act of salvation, a greater display of strength. It's all pointing forwards towards the cross. So when it talks about saving people, redeeming people, for us, instead of going back to the Exodus, we should be going back to the cross, thinking about the cross. And as you do that, as you look at the cross, you discover more clearly than anywhere else that God is holy. Because on the cross you see how serious sin is. You see that it has to be atoned for with blood. You see that the debt that sin accrues has to be paid in full. The stain of sin has to be washed away. You see that God is holy. You also see that God is incomparable because we're talking about the the massive debt that sin accrues, you look at the cross, he's the one paying it. Our debt, but his payment. And what he does to pay it is he hands over his own son to die in our place. And that's where we discover on the cross that God is doing amazing things because by giving his son as a sacrifice for sin, The power of death is broken and the greatest work of wonder that the world has ever seen is accomplished. Jesus rises again. And there we discover God's might that on the cross and in the resurrection the kingdom of evil is defeated. The power of death is conquered and a world that's so full of brokenness can now be a world full of hope. And all of that is telling us that when you look at the cross, you are discovering that God has come to save you. That's the whole purpose of the cross. Jesus has come so that we might be saved. But the fact that that happened tells you something absolutely amazing. We've been saying all the way through this that we can often think about God and moan. We we feel rubbish and guilty and useless and inadequate and uncertain and all the rest of it. All of that stuff fills our minds It leaves us feeling lost and insecure and unsure and troubled. We think that God is not particularly interested in us, so we think about God and we moan. But did you know what the truth is? The truth is, is that when sin broke you and broke me, when sin put us on a path to death, God thought of you and he moaned. Not moaned as in rolling his eyes, but moaned as in, I am not going to lose them. They are too precious to be lost. God was moved by his eternal compassion. He was willing to send his son. His son was willing to come and to die, all so that you might be God's precious child forevermore. And all of this means that if you are going to think about God in the right way, your thoughts have got to go through the cross. 
Your thoughts about God have got to go through to the cross. Because if your thoughts don't, if we bypass the cross, then your thoughts about God are either going to be too soft or too harsh. They'll be too soft and thinking, oh, well, sin's no big a deal. God will save me in the end. It's all fine. I can forget about him. No, the cross tells you that things are way more serious than that. But if you bypass the cross, you're also at risk of your thoughts about God being too harsh because you think, well, God's so disappointed with me. I'm a failure. I'm useless. He's never going to save me. I don't cut it. I can't come near him. All of that's rubbish. You've got to put your thoughts through the cross because if you put your thoughts through the cross, you will not think about God and moan. You will think about God and you will say, Look at what he did for me. You will look at God and you will say, Thank you. Because you gave your son for me. You will think about God and you will have peace. Because he's done everything. Everything that is needed for you to be safe forever if you've got if you want to think about God in the right way you've got to put your thoughts through the cross so this psalm is warning us against thinking about God in the wrong way and it's teaching us to think about God in the right way do you remember that I said at the start there's a secret in this psalm that I was going to reveal at the end in terms of how to actually do it did you did you spot it don't worry if you didn't I'm not going to test you um uh, I didn't spot it. I had to read a book to see it. Then when I read the book, I was like, oh, wow, that is so true. Um, so thank you to Derek Kidner, who wrote that commentary on the Psalms that helped me. What he said was that if you look at this Psalm, there is a very clear shift from I to you. If you look at the first half of the Psalm, verses 1 to 9, but everything seems so bleak, it's all I, 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 I. And the guys, the psalmist is just caught up in all his own failures and struggles and weaknesses and insecurities and in the second part of the psalm when everything changes he starts saying you 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 as he looks to god and that means that if you are seeking the lord for salvation or if you are needing to be refreshed and renewed in your faith as a christian please don't pray to god saying i'm this i'm that i'm so i'm I don't think you should do that. I think you should just pray to God and say, you, you are holy. You are incomparable. You've worked wonders. You are strong. You have saved me. You are my only hope. You're everything I need. I love you. That's the right way to think about God. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are just such a wonderful, amazing, glorious God. Help us all to think about you in the right way.